0: Welcome to She Illuminated. I'm Jana Fuchs, a licensed clinical psychotherapist and soul coach for burnt out women and moms looking to take control of their stress and say hello to a more joyful life. I'm also a mom to two incredible young humans, one of whom is autistic. Together, we will dive into real, raw, and messy conversations about intuition, vulnerability, and the resilience of the human spirit. We all deserve the gift of connection to ourselves and to our lives. So let's spend a little time together here, and perhaps we can walk through the rest of this day feeling just a bit more greatly illuminated. Let's go. Hello, my beautiful listeners, and welcome to episode 12 of She Illuminated. I am so grateful that you are here and that you've taken this time for yourself today, as always. And I am really looking forward to today's episode because it's a really important one. It's all about why we people please, where it comes from, and how it steals our joy and leaves us feeling empty and resentful. And finally, it's also about how you can begin to change. We're going to be talking all about boundary setting and give you some practical applications on how you can actually do it. And finally, we'll hear an up-close personal account of how old, outdated, people-pleasing and parent-pleasing that served as a defense maybe in childhood, right, as a survival mechanism, no longer serves us as adults and often has the opposite effect of prolonging misery and preventing joy and connection and authenticity. Now, before I share with you today about who my special guest is, I want to say A heartfelt thank you for all of your loves and feedback in the comments, in the reviews. It means so very much to me personally. And besides the fact that it lifts me up and it makes me feel amazing, what it actually does is it increases the visibility of the podcast so that it can have a greater impact and become available to wider audiences. So, I am asking you to please, if you've listened to more than one episode, maybe two or more, and you find the content helpful or valuable in some way, know that this is free content that I bring to you every episode, and I would be so grateful if you could take two seconds to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Okay, moving on. Who is my special guest today? Well, it is none other than my colleague and friend, Kelly Newpert. Kelly is an ex-corporate marketing professional turned licensed psychotherapist and personal development coach. She's the owner of KJN Coaching, a high-end boutique coaching practice. And as a people-pleasing expert, she helps millennial and Gen Z women gain the courage to ditch others' expectations, and live life true to themselves. And what I so love about Kelly, I mean, first of all, I love so many things about her. But what's really cool is that she does really kind of similar work that I do, just with a slightly younger population. Now, that doesn't mean that she and I don't have crossover. We absolutely do. But, you know, disclaimer, She's an almost 30-year-old, and I am an almost 45-year-old. We see things from different vantage points, but I think that there is so much overlap. And it's also really refreshing to hear her perspective, right? Because I can see my younger self and a lot of the things that she brings up and that she works on with her own clients. So without further ado, we are going to welcome Kelly to the show. Ellie Newpert, welcome to the show. I've been waiting for this day for what feels like months now, and I'm so delighted to have you here. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited and nervous. Yeah. Well, don't be nervous. I think that very quickly you will feel comfortable because, as you know, we have been peers for a long time, associates. And just to let the listeners in on a little secret, Kelly and I work together in our therapy practice, but Kelly also has her own separate coaching business. And she'll get into talking about that in a bit. And I have my own separate coaching business outside of our therapy practice. So I'm really eager to dive into today's topic. And I know we spoke A little bit offline before pressing record today, but as you know, today's show is centered on women and their tendency toward people-pleasing, overgiving, and perfectionism, and in working with women, both in the therapy setting as well as the coaching setting. I'm wondering if you can share with the listeners like some common core factors that you observe in your clients when it comes to people pleasing and perfectionism. And like specifically, how do you know when you've got a people pleaser in front of you? What is she saying or doing that kind of tips you off? Yeah, well hey people pleasers. Nice to see ya.
1: Welcome to a great club that we belong to. I feel like I'm the founder and CEO of that club. I would say that there is kind of four like core things that go into being a people pleaser. The first is a lot of their self-esteem is wrapped up in how other people perceive them or how they think other people perceive them. The second is that they associate being caring and loving in their relationships as being self-sacrificial. I would say the third is they will do anything and everything under the sun to avoid conflict or disagreement or upsetting somebody else, which often looks like not vocalizing their feelings or needs or opinions. And then the last would be there's real confusion and exhaustion between. How people perceive them and how they feel on the inside. There's an incongruency there. So, usually, what that kind of looks like in the day to day is there's a lot of shoulding. I should be doing XYZ. There's a lot of over apologizing for things that are out of their control. The amount of times that I've apologized for weather, traffic, things that are not my fault. There is a really intense resistance to saying no. It's almost like back in the day when we didn't have the new software updates. And when you try to type out fuck in your iPhone and it would autocorrect to duck, like the entrenchment of I'm trying to say no and I physically can't get the word out. Like It just (laughs) won't happen. That used to drive me
0: insane, crazy. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I think those are the common things that I see. It's a lot of burnout. It's a lot of around to different people and different issues and kind of crises. And it's a sense of a lack of control. Like I don't know where it's going wrong. Mm-hmm. And I'm terrified at the idea of doing anything that can make somebody feel negatively about me.
0: Yeah. First of all, I love those kind of like four general factors that you described because I completely agree Those are the same kind of general ones that I perceive in a lot of my clients who struggle with the same types of things. And in my opinion, I think a lot of it comes down to having a very difficult time connecting to self-trust and self-love. There's a lot of doubt. And rather than embracing that you can still speak up or say no or set a boundary, even if you have some self-doubt, it feels more comfortable for a lot of us who struggle with people-pleasing to just say, you know what, I'll just live with kind of like disappointing myself. I would rather not disappoint others and not sacrifice losing love or losing acceptance.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's a huge thing for self-doubt and a lack of self-trust. I think It is a self-perpetuating and self-defeating cycle that you are so hyper-attuned and hyper-aware of everyone else around you. You look externally for clues as to what's okay, what's safe, what's acceptable, that when it comes time for you to turn inward and think, what do I want for dinner? What do I want to do with my career? There's so much indecision because that muscle hasn't been used It's always been, I'm going to look externally for the clue, never internally for that. And it is this entanglement of thinking, if I don't shrink myself, I'm going to lose this connection and this community. And so it feels like a black and white, all or nothing type thing. And I'm going to choose to not lose that because that's so important to me.
0: So I guess I'll just still stay stuck in this place. I think... I'm always struck by the meaning of our work when you're sitting in front of a client and it's like the first time that they're being confronted with this information about themselves in this way, like using this verbiage of basically being told like the root of so much of your relational difficulties or your feeling constantly exhausted or constantly burn out mm-hmm. is because of your tendencies towards people pleasing and whatever your idea of perfectionism looks like, how you are projecting what you think people are expecting of you in terms of being perfect. And we end up with exactly what you said. A lot of women feeling just like totally lost as to like, I don't even know what I like. I mean, constantly, I don't know how many times I've heard, I don't know what my interests are. I don't have any hobbies, right? And the word hobbies is one thing. I feel like that's like an antiquated, outdated word. You're not sitting here doing like model airplanes. I don't know. Maybe some people are. What do you enjoy? What do you feel like calls out to you? What do you look at and think to yourself, wow, that seems really cool. Like what that person is doing, that that seems cool. I could get into that, right? That looks interesting to me. And then like going for it, right? Right. Even if self-doubt or insecurity comes up, there's still something in all of us. I think when we uncover enough of the rubble that we can connect to that goes like, yeah, I'm going to try this thing or I gonna say no to that thing that someone else is asking me to do, right? It's like that permission that you're able to give to yourself to take up space in the world, I think ties back also to all of this, to people-pleasing and perfectionism, rather than shrinking away from the world, like you were talking about. Yeah, I think that most people, they're
1: not thinking about enjoyment, right? Because people-pleasing serves the function of trying to mitigate your anxiety, you're thinking the best way for me to get rid of my anxiety in the short term around if I'm going to upset somebody, if they're going to be disappointed in me, if I'm going to lose this relationship, worst case scenario, is for me to acquiesce to what I think they need and what they want. Yeah, And it's, it's a protection mechanism. It's not something that actually leads to that enjoyment. And I do find that a lot of women aren't necessarily motivated to set the boundaries because they don't know... Okay, so let's say I free up all this time. Then what do I do with it? Like I'm so lost as to how I even give that back to myself. They're so desperate just for some time to rest, yeah, almost like escape from the world, but they don't know what it would look like to actually move into enjoyment or play.
0: Yeah, and so I am curious to hear from you, in your own opinion, and I know I have mine. Why do women, in particular? struggle so much with people-pleasing and perfectionism. Like, What's at the root of it?
1: Yeah. So I think that there's two things, but I think specifically in relation to women, we live in a patriarchal society. I don't think that you can comment on people-pleasing without acknowledging that. And we raise girls and boys to be very different. We raise girls to be gentle, kind, compassionate, aware of their surroundings and we highlight relationships for girls. And so as they're developing, their sense of identity becomes really tied to their ability to sustain relationships. At the same time, as a society, we devalue that. (laughs) So we set them up for failure a little bit, in the sense that we say, here's the traditional feminine values. And if you want that closeness in a relationship though, you're codependent. You're nagging. You're asking for too much. If a woman rejects those traditional values and is too hyper-independent, she's cold, she's a bitch, she's not warm or caring or kind. Okay. It makes me oh, think yeah. of, you know, America Pereira's soliloquy in the Barbie. Barbie. Of it. yeah. It's just it's never yeah. gonna be good enough. Yeah, And I do think it it sets up a really nasty trap that we raise them to value their relationships and have a sense of self-esteem and identity within those relationships. But then we don't systemically
0: and societally value that. Yeah. So when you have a woman that you are working with around this struggle, right? And again not a unique struggle. It's not just like a few women. It's, I would argue, probably most of us, right? Now, some of us are better than others at drawing strong boundaries, saying no, not feeling like they have to overly apologize, not feeling like they have to be perfect for anyone else. But it's like almost everything on a continuum. And I would argue that almost every single one of us women struggles with this to a degree. And so I want to know, how do you work with women to kind of help them to make small changes that could lead to more sustainable, more empowering changes down the line? I think for me, I'm a very or I try to be, and it's a
1: spectrum, (laughs) but I I try to be a logical and rational person. And I think I got to a point where I realized people pleasing doesn't work. And that to me unlocked Pandora's box because all of this energy and effort that I was giving towards trying to get quote unquote, the things that I wanted I was trying to get an intimacy that I hadn't had. I was trying to feel seen, heard, and understood. I was trying to gain success in XYZ ways. It wasn't working. And that's the thing that I try to tell my clients or get them to even open up to the possibility that it might not work. That the thing that you think is bringing you closer to the people in your life, the ways that you're prioritizing your relationships is actually what's fostering a lot of disconnection, a lot of resentment. And it's it's what's going to end up ruining your relationship and maybe causing you to have to walk away because you are non-existent in that relationship when you show
0: up as a version of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's what's it based on. It's based on mm-hmm. your alter ego, right? I hate to put it harshly, but in a way it makes me think it's like your most vapid self. And so... You're absolutely right. I completely agree with you. For women, a lot of it does stem from all of the patriarchal norms and rules that are in the air that we breathe. Mm -hmm. And even as feminist as many of us feel that we are, it doesn't make us any less susceptible from participating in it right? We really have to watch it. Yeah. I think that having the support of other women who have gone through some sort of like meaningful kind of change or metamorphosis, if you will, with coming through the worst of it and really being able to locate themselves, locate their own power, develop stronger boundaries. I think having support from women like that can make such a huge difference because it's like proof (laughs) that things can get better and that there's like a blueprint for how to get there. And so I think on that note, if you're comfortable, how would you feel about talking about some of your own story, your own journey? Because you started out the podcast talking about how you've been there and back. So yeah, would you mind sharing a little bit about your own journey with setting boundaries, and maybe even how like your own history with trauma played into your story of people-pleasing.
1: I'm an open book, (laughs) but if I get too in the weeds, let me know. Yeah, I think people-pleasing or otherwise known as fawning, it can very often be a trauma response. And the other root of people-pleasing that I didn't touch on was Yes, there is something societally and there's a lot of positive reinforcement for women being self-sacrificial. That's a lot of the messaging that we get is how to get a man, how to be a good mom, right? All of those roles, the way that it's positioned and framed is around how we alter and change ourselves to attain those things. So there's a societal piece, but then there's also on a smaller level, the familial piece, which is that people pleasers often start as parent pleasers and they get that reinforcement on a one-to-one level and within the family dynamic. And so for me, I grew up in the perfect storm of fostering a hell of a people pleaser. The household was very chaotic. And my mom has borderline personality disorder. She also was very emotionally abusive and an alcoholic, which let me clarify, not everybody with borderline is abusive or struggles with addiction. That's just the combo that my mom deals with. But somebody with borderline looks to other people to manage their emotions and to give them a sense of identity and self-esteem and to provide that stability for them. And the best way I can describe it is just feeling like home was filled with a ton of landmines and you never knew when you were going to step on a landmine. They can be the most loving and the most hateful people and often are and swing on that spectrum. And so I learned from a young age that to foster that core belief that I am in control of my mom's feelings and actions. And that's a really powerful thing to internalize and a really tough thing to internalize Especially when you're being told it repeatedly, which he used to do a lot.
0: It's so hard as a mother for me to hear about little young Kelly, who I deeply care about, assuming that much emotional responsibility for her own grown mother's well-being. If I'm hearing you correctly, what I'm hearing you say is from a really young age, you had no choice but to learn how to please in order to survive, right? For you, being a pleaser and not ruffling feathers was like a survival strategy, right?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. It definitely was a survival mechanism. I think as a kid, when there's a lot of chaos and confusion you can't hold the complexity that your parent is both a good person doing bad things. Mm -hmm. And so naturally you try to make sense of the chaos by saying, I must be doing something to cause this. And so not only did I have that inherent tendency, but I also had her telling me point blank, you are the reason why this is your fault. You are doing this to me because she really struggles with taking accountability for her actions and anything that didn't fall in line with her narrative and identity of being the perfect mom was absolutely unacceptable. And so for me to feel any sense of attachment, which when you're a kid, you need to rely upon your parents to some extent. Once I honestly got a car that went away and I just became very hyper independent and just parented myself But coming back to the sense like you have to rely upon your parent to some extent, and you're so desperate for that level of love, even if it's conditional. So I became really good at realizing what things would hopefully, it was very inconsistent, would hopefully get me some praise, right? I became the straight A student. I became the emotionally mature kid that was helping out around the house and that all the other parents commented on how responsible for my age I was. I became the jokester. You know, I really tried to lighten the mood with humor and cracking jokes. And it's hard because the family all, especially with addiction or mental illness, the family unit now all revolves around that person. Yeah, Um, And so it's not just me that was pleasing, the entire family was. And that's tough. You don't realize that something is off until you're able to get into other family environments or be around other people and realize it's not normal to go to the mall and have my mom blow up at the salesperson or to have to yeah, leave right. any restaurants because there's
0: an outburst yeah. at the leader. Yeah. So in your case, again, learning how to avoid landmines for you looked like using your wit and your humor, being responsible, getting good grades, right? Never talking back. And you said you didn't realize that it looked differently for other families until you got a little older and you were out and about in the world. And it was like, wait a minute, this isn't everyone. And so in your circumstance, it's very multi-layered because I was very blessed and fortunate to have a mom who was unconditionally loving and nurturing and who i didn't have to worry about those things with and yet i am also i would say a recovering people pleaser and in some ways a perfectionist in other ways not <laughs> but to me it's much more about the patriarchal kind of like contribution and my kind of playing into gender role norms without really? even realizing it but i can only imagine what that added foundational layer that you as an, as a child in those formative years like survival instincts and like defense mechanisms that develop in childhood can really start to feel if they worked for us like they are what our personality is. And it's really hard to separate defense mechanisms and survival mechanisms, from, no, this is just my personality. Like I've got a pleasing, responsible, witty, fun personality. And an argument can be made that maybe partially that's true. That's become your personality because of all of that. It's shaped mm-hmm. it. But let's not lose sight of the fact that you did those things because you had to. And still to this day, you might automatically believe that you have to in order to gain acceptance, love, and safety. And so it's really about unlearning or unteaching yourself, re-parenting yourself to learn otherwise, to take up space, to play, to not feel like you have to save someone Right. To not feel like you have to be witty or always so responsible. Yeah. Totally. I mean, trauma fucking
1: sucks. Let's be real. And I think it has a huge pervasive impact on how you view yourself, how you view others, how you view the world. Even me saying it abusive, I still cringe at. I'm still like, mm, was it abusive? I still doubt myself on that. You know, and I have to remind myself, I would never say that to a client. I would always stand firm and it was abuse, but it's still tough for me even to this day. And I still feel the need to be like, but I wasn't hit. So it wasn't that bad. And so it's super pervasive. It's really entrenched and it was adaptive. That's the thing. I think it took me a long time to say that served me in a lot of ways. It was very adaptive, but it is no longer serving me now as an adult. And it's the thing that's actually preventing me in a lot of ways of getting what I want and need, but that's a lot to process and sit with.
0: For sure. And the big word that we haven't talked about is grief too, right? Grief in the way that you did not have the mother that you really needed and deserved. And even though she's still here, she's alive, right? Mm-hmm. There's so much grief as if the mother somewhere off in some distant galaxy that was meant for you never came down to this earth to be with you. That's how I think about it. I don't know if that resonates or not, but it almost feels like grief for someone who never existed.
1: A thousand percent. And I do, I think changing my relationship to grief, to guilt, to anger was huge in processing a lot of the trauma. I think, yeah, it was really for a lot of people that I work with that have emotionally immature parents. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they have a mental illness or that they're struggling with addiction, just emotionally immature parents. I think there's so much grief wrapped up in. And I I had this point, even I would say six months ago, where now being 30, I'm like, fuck. I've been taking care of myself for so long. And you're telling me now I have to do this adult bullshit for the rest of my life? Like, what? That's so unfair. I didn't get to have the childhood or the freedom really to play and explore and have imagination and and those things to where it it feels like a never ending loop. And, you know, that this is going to be something. That I have to consistently deal with. I'm an adult. I have to handle it. And I think that's a big thing is this shift for me and going from it being my fault and it being my problem are two separate things. It's not my fault what happened, which still working on disentangling that, but it is now my problem, unfortunately. And like it is my life now. And I'm not in that unsafe environment anymore. I don't need to do those things anymore to keep myself safe. But I need to take full control over my life now. And sometimes that looks like taking care of myself mm-hmm. in ways that are beneficial for me.
0: Yeah. So, what do some of those ways look like? Like, I'm imagining, I don't know, do you turn on your favorite music and just have like dance parties with yourself, which to me feels like play in a way or? engage in like art projects or like super fun social outings or trips with friends where you just hear yourself giggle like big old belly laughs because you feel safe enough and calm enough and connected enough to be able to do those things. I don't know. What does it look like for you? Spending time with my dog.
1: dust with her. It's a huge part of my personality now, being dog mom. I think a lot of it is relearning and reshaping my relationship to working out, which also used to be very punishing. But I'm now trying to look at as just like moving my body, not to look a certain way to fit into a box, mm-hmm. but because it's healthy for me because I value my health. Mm-hmm. I think it also looks like spending a lot of time with good friends who I can be authentic with. And yeah, that's the kind of part of the fun of it. Once you get past kind of the seer, it's exciting to explore. I did go through a very big art project phase during COVID, but it gets a little messy. I like interior design. Like That's the fun is that you get to re-explore things that you might be interested in.
0: I love the stories that I hear from other people on the other side who have had similar kind of difficult childhoods. And I can't tell you how often I hear. I really just feel like looking back on my childhood that I don't really remember playing. And so they are able to find out what does play mean now as an adult? If I were to just go and just let myself play, I think so many of us think we're adults now, like adults don't play. Yes, they do. They should. And we need to. Life is not just about checking boxes. It's about also feeling connected and enjoying. And one of the... Easiest ways to do that is playing and sharing and play with others who we enjoy being around. So it's like figuring out what that is for you. Yeah. A thousand
1: percent. I love that. I think it requires a level of vulnerability that I think is really difficult for people who have gone through trauma, right? Not a safe space in the environment, not a safe space in my body. And to play, you have to be in the moment. You have to let yourself be... That sounds counterintuitive, right? That it, it takes vulnerability to be able to play, but it does. Yeah. I think... I'm just going to say it was Brene Brown. Maybe it's not often it is, Um, who said, like, joy is one of the hardest emotions for us to experience because it's fleeting and we're terrified that it's going to leave. And a lot of people with trauma can't trust the good thing in front of them because they're so used to the shoe dropping. And that was true for me, too. So it takes a conscientiousness and an intentionality and a vulnerability to really let yourself move into that joyful space.
0: Yeah. Whether you are working with someone in their 20s or in their 30s, right? Like I know your focus as a coach and your own coaching business is millennial women, right? For the most part, but whether this is someone in their 20s or 30s or middle years, what are some good, quick, tangible ways that women can start to implement better boundaries for themselves If they often do struggle to do like, where do you start with that? Like, how do you break that down?
1: Yeah, I think I'm hesitant to say like quick wins for the purpose of on social media. I see all the time, like, here's the how to's of setting a boundary. And I'm like, if it was that fucking easy, we all be doing it. Totally. totally, It with like such nonchalantness. And the reality is like, how does setting boundaries, I feel like is step eight of a longer process. Maybe you'll set one or two, but sustainably, if you don't get at the root of why this behavior and pattern started, you can't jump to the how of fixing it. But people who have been thinking about this for a long time or in that phase of being ready to actually take some tangible steps, I think that there's a few things. One is like learning how to pause until like when you're being pressured for an answer of yes or no give yourself some time say i need to look at my schedule and i'll get back to you let me take a few hours to think about it because your gut reaction is going to be to say yes and you need to give yourself some space to really mull on is this what i want is this what i need do i have the bandwidth for this right now or am i doing this for somebody else
0: great and i will add to that just because i have the capacity doesn't mean that it is going to be a good thing for me. Yep. Totally. Yeah. Just because you can, like that goes back to
1: that thing. of I have to prove my worth, right? To be loved is to be needed. That's at the core of being a people pleaser. No, we're not proving our worth to no one. You don't have to prove anything. I think the other one, well, two more. One is stop waiting for yourself to not be anxious before setting a boundary. It is never going to happen. And I say that in a very gentle.
0: <laughs> I, I didn't say no. It a gentle way, I mean, one million way. percent. I wouldn't walk out my door in the morning if I waited to stop being anxious. I wouldn't leave that. If too. you
1: think about it, like you're at a restaurant and somebody says it's going to be a 15 minute wait, and they get you in at like 13 minutes, you're stoked. If they tell you we'll get you in a couple minutes, and then it ends up being a 15 minute wait, you're peeved. And I say that because if you're honest about acknowledging and setting the appropriate expectations that this is going to be anxiety provoking for me it feels easier to maneuver, right? It is going to be uncomfortable and you can still do it. Like The difference between people who do the scary things and the ones who don't is not that they have some miracle cure for anxiety, that they just never have it. It's that they make space for it and they do it anyways. And the more that you do it, the easier it gets. So I think being honest with yourself that it is anxiety provoking and will be, but you're reminding yourself that I'm prioritizing the long-term over the short-term. And then really quickly, the last would be start taking stock of what I hear all the time. And I catch myself doing it too, is I have to blank and instead shift it to I'm choosing to blank. I'm not preaching this from a toxic positivity standpoint of that. You are trying to say that you're stoked about your three-hour commute. I'm saying if you are staying up until midnight to work on something, communicating it to yourself that I'm choosing to prioritize. like I'm choosing to prioritize work right now because I'm so scared of my boss being disappointed. Mm. When you start rephrasing it as I'm choosing to say yes to this because of blank, or I'm choosing to do blank, it really shifts how you see how many things you're doing that you don't want to be spending time and energy and effort towards, and that you have control over that. You're the one saying yes to it.
0: I think that is so helpful. And I love that. It's tangible. You can sink your teeth into it. It's a simple tweak that can yield a big difference in how you choose to react. And for myself too, I often remind myself with all the things that I have chosen to put on my own plate that don't need to be there, but they're there because I want to be doing them or I value doing them even when they stress me out. And this is a little bit of a different example. I have to remind myself, this is a self-chosen. This is like a self-imposed choice that I am making. Nobody's putting this on me. I'm choosing this. And once I kind of remind myself of that, I'm able to be like, wait a minute, this is what I want. I chose this because it matches my values. And sometimes the thing I'm doing is a lot of work or it's going to stress me out or things aren't always going to go according to plan, but I'm doing this because I want to and I'm choosing to. So it's like in a similar vein. And I love this, Kelly, because I am going to be doing a solo episode very soon. Who knows? Maybe even the next one. all about why it's crucial for us to learn how to disappoint others so that we don't end up in a perpetual state of burnout and exhaustion. We need to learn how to disappoint others so that we don't constantly disappoint ourselves. And that kind of directly ties to so much of what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, I think that... Again, going back to this idea of right, self-esteem being wrapped up in other people's perceptions of me, right? One of the reasons why it's so hard to disappoint others as a people pleaser is because if I disappoint them, then I am a disappointment, right? That's the threat. Mm. I am a disappointment. I am a failure. So of course, that's gonna keep the cycle going, is I can't disappoint if the risk of that is I am then inherently. A disappointment or a failure. Right. You have to disentangle the two. They yeah. are adults. They can cope. People get
0: disappointed all the time. We get upset all the time about the dumbest shit. Yeah. And the fact is respect is given to those who respect themselves, right? Yeah. People can sniff out people pleasers pretty quickly especially people in positions of power, even well-meaning people in positions of power. And if you condition them to believe that you will always be the yes woman, they will always expect you to be the yes woman. But it's not easy, and learning to do something differently than you always have done can take support. And, right, the support of either a therapist, or a coach, or a really trusted friend who is there for you unconditionally to reflect back to you honestly and compassionately what they're hearing you say. I will add for our listeners that if you do have trauma in your background and it is causing you to have mental health symptoms such as lots of anxiety, depression, other types of mood disorders, difficulty kind of functioning in optimal ways, relationship, like real kind of intense issues and relationship patterns. My recommendation first would be to consult with a therapist. And again, disclaimer, this podcast is not meant as a substitute for therapy, right? This is a podcast. But We can point you in the right direction, which is to say, if you have trauma, consult with a therapist. You can look online in your area and do a Google search of the the types of things that you're struggling with and put those in and see what it yields for you. But if you're someone who just feels like you need just a little more support and you want to come up with like really goal-oriented, actionable steps, and or if you already have a therapist and you want to add the coaching piece on, I think coaching would be a great fit. Are you in agreement with that?
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I think that both of us are therapists and coaches. So I think we see the value in both. And there is immense value in both, dependent upon what you're struggling with and what you're hoping to work on. I think coaching is biased to action. And it's usually around... It can help you identify and gain stronger self-awareness as to how this started and why it's continued. And I think that's an important part of it is being able to show gratitude for the ways that it served you and also recognize the ways that it's not serving you anymore. And then it moves more into kind of solutions focused. Here are some steps and here's a support that we can give you in order to be able to start doing those scary small things. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think therapy is incredibly helpful and transformative for people that are struggling with trauma. I know for how important it's been in my life.
0: Yeah, yeah. And if people want to work with you or learn more about you as a coach, where can they read more about you or get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, you can go to kjncoaching.com, which is currently under construction. So <laughs> be weary, but it should be done hopefully in the next couple of weeks. That's what I'm holding myself accountable to. Or you can take a look at my Instagram, which I'm I've also taken a brief hiatus from, but we'll be back on and posting, which is KJN Coaching as well.
0: Okay. Very good. Kelly, thank you so very much. This has been amazing to finally have you on the show. You're clearly such a wealth of information just from your own personal lived experience, as well as your professional experience as a therapist and a coach. So my friends, if you are someone who has recognized yourself in today's episode, and you feel like you're someone who is always there for others, nurturing, giving, shouldering responsibilities that maybe feel like they don't necessarily belong to you or that crush your spirit. And you think to yourself at the end of the day, wasn't there something more that I wanted for myself out of this day? If you're craving a sense of purpose, but you're battling with guilt and confusion over how to set boundaries, then my Kick the Shit Out of Burnout six-week coaching program is for you. You are a bright, insightful woman, and you know deep down that you are meant for more, right? And so I see you. Over six transformative weeks, we can rekindle that inner spark, guiding you to embrace the dreams that you've shelved and find meaningful work that resonates with your soul. It's time for you to ignite that once forgotten passion and pave a path that celebrates you in all of your splendid role. If you're ready to leap into that next chapter to truly prioritize the dreams that you once whispered to the stars, then the journey begins with me in my Kick the Shit Out of Burnout program. The info is linked in the show notes. Until then, keep shining brightly. If you have enjoyed the show and want to learn more, you can follow me at www.sheilluminated.com or email me with comments and show ideas at janna at sheilluminated.com. If you're interested in working with me as a coaching client, contact me at Jana at Jana and if this episode meant something to you, please consider supporting the show by taking less than one minute to rate and review the show. It makes all the difference in the world to help spread the word and it makes it accessible to wider audiences everywhere. You can also take a screenshot of it and share it with a friend or on your socials. Tag me, Jana Fuchs Coaching. And as always, may you walk through the rest of your day feeling just a bit more brightly illuminated until next time.